if there's one thing that we as human beings can't seem to get away from, it's a desperate need for a sense of identity. We all feel that we've got this deep need to know who we are. We feel like until we have some sort of answer to that question of who we are, we can't even start to understand the world around us and how we fit into it. And so naturally, we come up with hundreds of different ways to answer that question that never seem to be quite right. We define ourselves by ethnicity, family, gender, economic class, political party, sexuality, you name it. Every characteristic that we could possibly find in ourselves and in the world around us, we use to answer that question, who am I? And when we find out that the identity that we've cultivated for ourselves isn't good enough, then when we find out that our answer doesn't satisfy, doesn't give us the joy that we want or the peace that we want, what we do is we try to change these characteristics and we make a new identity for ourselves. And so gradually we start to look at life as this never-ending process of finding ourselves, becoming a better me. And the problem is though that even if we could make it to the end of this process of finding ourselves, we don't need it at the end of our lives, we need it now. We, we need to know who we are before we can even begin to understand the world and our place in it, how we fit in and live in the world around us. And thankfully, God doesn't leave us just on our own to answer this question. It's one of the biggest concerns of the Bible is letting us know who we are. And specifically in this passage and in the letter of Ephesians, that's what Paul is really concerned about. The entire second chapter of Ephesians is dedicated to helping the church in Ephesus and the Christians there answer that question, who am I? And what Paul's doing here in Ephesians as a whole, and specifically here in this passage, is he's trying to get the Ephesians ready to make it through this life with joy and endurance. And he knows that in order to do that, they're going to need to know who they are. They're going to need a firm foundation for them to build their life on if they're going to make it through this life without falling apart, just like we do. And the foundation that he latches onto in this passage is this issue of identity. And so in this passage, what we see is God himself telling us through Paul who we are as Christians. And he tells us first who we were before we were Christians. Then he tells us how we became Christians. And finally, he tells us what it means now that we are Christians. And so to break it up into three parts, he tells us that Christians are sinners, saved by grace through faith in Christ, to show Christ's glory. And so let's spend some time just looking at this passage and unpacking that definition along with Paul as he breaks down each piece of it. And so starting with Paul in verses 1 through 3, uh, I want us to first look at who we are apart from Christ. And at first, uh, you might think this doesn't really matter. I mean, Paul himself is the one who says that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation, right? That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's in the Bible. Uh, that same passage says the old has passed away. So, wouldn't it be logical to just assume that the old creation should just be forgotten, right? And Paul says, well, no, it, it shouldn't. 
Instead, in verse 11 of this passage, he says to the Ephesians to remember who you were before Christ. And so what he's saying is that even though we're no longer what we were as Christians, what we were still helps us to understand who we are now. We're a new creation, but in some way, we're still connected to that old creation, and that has implications for us now. And so when Paul says that we were dead, he isn't just glossing over the unimportant stuff so we can get to the really good stuff. He's saying that because of our sin, we were actually in some real state of deadness. And that's important for how we look at ourselves now that we are Christians. He wants us to recognize that we were in a situation that we were totally un. We weren't just sinning, we were dead. In other words, we couldn't stop sinning. That was impossible for us. What Paul means when he says in verse 1 that we were dead in trespasses and sins is that we were more than just a simple decision away from repentance. No, what he's saying is before we were Christians, we were all dead, and we had to be brought back to life before anything could happen. And so we were unable to repent, just as unable as a dead man is unable to just get up and start walking again. And I don't know how many dead people you've been around, but unfortunately, I've seen my fair share. And there's just something about seeing something like that that forces you to grapple with the fact that the person in front of you isn't coming back. They're not just going to get up and start walking around again. They're not sleeping. They're not going to wake up. They're gone. And there's nothing you can do to change that. And that's heavy, but that's, that's the heaviness that Paul's trying to get at. It's in that kind of deadness that we walked in sin. Paul says that we were following the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air, in verse 2. Satan was working in us, he says, just as he's now working in the sons of disobedience. The problem wasn't that we just sinned every now and then. No, what Paul says is that we were consistently following the devil. We were walking in sin, he says. Sin wasn't just something we occasionally stumbled into. It was the pattern of life that we lived in. It was the path that we walked on. And like I said, we were dead, so in some sense we were stuck here on this path, but it wasn't because we didn't have a choice or because we were coerced into it. It was because we loved it, ultimately. Paul says that we followed the devil because we loved walking in sin. And so the reason you sin against God is because you love to. Paul says in verse 3 that in following the course of this world, we were actually carrying out our own desires. These desires of the body and the mind that he talks about aren't foreign desires that are just pushed onto us. They're our own corrupt desires. It's what we want. And what Paul says is that these corrupt desires and the things we did because of those desires aren't just only one thing, God's wrath. Now, I don't care if you were a convicted felon or some good, church-going, God-fearing model citizen before you knew Christ. The Bible says that you were far more evil than you could possibly imagine. In fact, Paul says that we were so bad that God's wrath was part of who we were, was part of our nature. He says in verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. And just like you can take one look at someone's kid and see their parents in them, just look at Zeke, uh, if you don't know, uh, you can see a little bit of both Nate and Jen in him. Um, that's what it means for us to be children of wrath. God took one look at us, 
and immediately what he saw were people who deserved his wrath. And it's not just you, although it is you, but it's the rest of mankind too, he says. Paul says that that's the natural state of humanity, alienation and wrath. That's what it means to be a sinner. And unfortunately, that's true for everyone, whether or not they're a Christian. And fundamentally, that's the biggest reason why all our attempts to find ourselves and make our own identities fall flat. If you start with yourself, you're going to find out pretty quickly that you've got a lot of work to do. I mean, it'd be like trying to take an old Ford Pinto to a drag strip. Like, no matter how much work you do on that car, it's never going to do very well. Uh, it's a beater. Unless you make it into a whole new car. And in the same way, no matter how much you try to renovate and modify your heart, you can't escape the fact that you're not what you should be. And if you're honest with yourself, you're probably not even what you want to be. So if you identify yourself by what you've done or the kind of person that you are, you're constantly going to be on pretty shaky ground. That's not the foundation that Paul wants the Ephesians to build their lives on. And thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. He says, we might have gotten as far as we can get on our own, but the good news is, as Christians, we're not left on our own. And so in verse 4, Paul makes this huge pivot. He says, but God. And he uses that to transition from talking about what we've done to now talking about what God's done. And from the point that he says, but God, forward, we get an entirely different tone out of Paul. We said earlier that a Christian is a sinner saved by grace. And here, for the first time, we get a glimpse at where that grace comes from and what it is. We see what caused God to give us this grace, what prompted him to save us, children of wrath. And kind of surprisingly, the basis that Paul gives for God's grace doesn't even mention us. We don't even come up. It's all about how merciful God is and how much he loves us. He says that the reason God saved us from our deadness is his rich mercy. And just to kind of explain that term, what this means isn't just that God has a lot of mercy. You know, it's not just that God has enough mercy that he can spare some for all of us. No, to say that God is rich in mercy is to say that God is absolutely overflowing with mercy. And for some reason, that mercy overflows towards us. And that's awesome. But like we talked about, the reason that this mercy does overflow towards us can't be linked to us fundamentally, right? The only thing we can warrant from God and provoke in God ourselves is God's wrath. So where does this mercy come from then? Well, Paul says that the reason is because of the great love with which God loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So in other words, God saves us, and he shows us mercy because he loves us. And the reason God's mercy is so rich and overflowing is because his love is the same way. Paul says his love for us is great, which means it's abundant, it's just as overflowing as his mercy is. And that makes sense. Uh, if God's mercy is abundant, the basis for that also, also has to be abundant. And 
that's awesome. But also, you might ask, all right, but then why does God love us? And that's a really good question. Um, and like I said, one thing we know is that the answer doesn't start with us. Because, I mean, Paul makes it pretty clear that we had nothing to do with it. We were dead. We were objects of wrath. So where does this come from? Well, uh, I think the answer at first might seem a little bit counterintuitive. And it doesn't immediately jump out at you when you read this uh, just skimming the surface. But I think it is important that every action that God takes in this passage, specifically in verses 4 through 6, every single verb is connected to Christ. Everything's with Christ or in Christ. Every action that God takes in these verses is on the basis of Christ, who he is and what he's done. And I think what we see in these verses, and especially in the rest of Ephesians, is that the basis for God's love for us is ultimately his love for his son, Jesus Christ. And so in other words, God loves you because he loves Jesus. And for some reason that we're never going to be able to understand, at least in this life, he's tied his love for Jesus together with his love for you in a way that can never be undone. And you see this awesome truth throughout the Bible. The love that God loves you with is the same love with which he loves his own son. In fact, that's the very last thing that Jesus prays for in John chapter 17 before he gets arrested and crucified. It's that his disciples would know that God loves them even as he loves Jesus himself. And what that means is for God to stop loving Jesus Christ would mean for him to stop being God. And because he's tied that love to you in a way that could never be undone, it's just as impossible for him to stop loving you as it is for him to stop loving his own son. Now let me say that again, in case I didn't sink in the first time, because that's, that's pretty awesome. For God to stop loving you, he would have to stop loving Jesus. He would have to stop being God. And that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that there's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the result of that infinite, inseparable love that God has for us is that God determined that he would unite us to Christ. And so he chose not only to love us in the same way that he loves Jesus, but also to give us everything that Jesus himself deserves. Paul says that God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him. He's seated us with him. So when we were dead, Jesus himself died with us. And in raising him from the dead, God makes us alive with him now. When he raised him up to sit on the throne of heaven, he took us with him and put him right next to him on that throne. And that's the reality that now defines us as Christians. Someone asked me earlier this week what I would say if someone said they didn't feel like they were already reigning with Christ. And I, in my usual gentle and considerate tone, replied, shut up, yes you are. And Jared, um, since he didn't feel like he got enough jokes in during last week's sermon, told me to make sure I included that one in this sermon. So you can thank him for that. All right. You all heard that, right? Jared owes me five bucks. Uh, anyways, the point is, like, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that the reality is, 
For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And as a result of that, everything that Christ earned for us is a reality, whether or not we always feel it. Because ultimately, God didn't just give us justification or sanctification or glorification or any of those other fancy words. He gave us Jesus Christ himself. And in him, we have every blessing imaginable. And that gift of Jesus Christ, God's own son, God himself in the flesh, given for us, that's what grace is. Michael Reeves, uh, the author of the book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, defines grace as this, the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately God gives himself. So grace is the wholehearted desire of God to devote himself in Christ completely to people who don't deserve anything from him but wrath. And it's only on the basis of God's love for Christ. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. The fact that God raised us from the dead and seated us with him in heaven is completely and solely dependent on the fact that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so now I think we've done enough to kind of explore what it means to be a sinner and what it means to be saved by grace. But we're not quite done yet. What we've gotten so far is pretty awesome all by itself, but you still might legitimately ask, all right, so what? And that's not entirely illegitimate. An identity isn't complete until we've identified a purpose. And so far, we've kind of figured out where we are, but we haven't really identified where we're going. And that's why I included verses 7 through 10 in this sermon. Because here we see the rubber meet the road, and we see what this identity looks like in action. This is where we, uh, we take the pento to the drag strip. Uh, Sorry, that was a bad joke. <laughs> All right. So, anyways, what does God want to be the result of everything he's done for us? Well, it's actually pretty simple. He just wants to show how much he loves us and how much kindness he's given us. He wants to show us kindness for literally all eternity. Infinite kindness. And he wants the whole universe to see that kindness. In Paul's own words, in verse 7, God saved us so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What that means is that the best thing you could possibly do to honor God and thank him for what he's done for you is simply enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that God has given you and continues to give you infinite love and kindness. And if you have any burdens or desires weighing on your heart, then don't hesitate for a moment to bring them before God. And have confidence that God really does want more than anything to show you kindness and give you joy in him. I mean, if we really believe God's word, then we'll actually believe Paul when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God isn't waiting for you to do something before he answers your prayers. The only thing he wants from you is your joy. There's nothing you could give to God to pay him back for what he's done. The only response he wants is for you to enjoy that. Now, sometimes that desire for your joy will mean not answering your prayers. That's hard. But sometimes the best thing for you is not giving you what you want. 
because sometimes what you want is wrong, either because it's sinful or simply because we don't always know what's best for us. But a lot of the time, it really will mean that God will answer your prayers. I mean, I'm convinced that James was actually onto something when he said, you do not have because you do, do not ask. I mean, if we ask God for more, I'm convinced we would not only have more, but we would also learn through that to ask for the right things. I mean, just imagine, what would it look like if we actually believed God when he told us that he wanted to show us infinite kindness for all eternity? What would it look like if we viewed even the good works that we do as Christians as God's gifts for our joy? And that's not just a hypothetical. That's actually what Paul says. He says everything we do as Christians as a response to God saving us, every good work we do to honor God, is a gift from God himself. Paul says that not only is God responsible for us being made into a new creation, he's also the one who's crafted the good works we do as a new creation. He says in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what he's saying here is that God's grand design for the universe is to demonstrate his kindness towards us and He's included us as participants in that design. He lets us participate in making the universe in such a way that it displays his glory and his kindness towards us. An image that comes to my mind when I think about this is whenever my stepdad would invite me over to help out with a project around the house as a kid. And to be honest, it definitely would have been so much easier for him to just do it himself. Like, I had no idea what I was doing. I was, he probably thought I was an idiot most of the time. Uh, but instead of just telling me to get lost, my stepdad was patient. And he let me actually be a part of whatever it was he was doing. Even though he could have done it better and faster if he had done it himself, he still let me actually contribute to whatever it was he was doing. In fact, he was actually pumped that I wanted to help out and I wanted to learn to do what he was doing. And sometimes I think he would even intentionally give me tasks that I had no idea what I was doing so I'd have to ask for his help. My stepdad, I mean, wanted to use these projects as a chance to teach me and help me, but also to bond with me. And so every time I'd have to ask for help, I would learn a little bit more, not just about what my stepdad was doing, but also a little bit about my stepdad himself. And kind of in the same way, God invites us to participate in this project that he's been working on for all eternity. This mission to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we get to participate both in, in showing the results of that kindness toward us in our lives and in extending that kindness toward others. And we do both by imitating our Father, doing everything we can to learn what he's like so we can be like him. And just like when I would need help from my stepdad, we desperately need some help from our father if we're going to learn to actually participate in this project. And that's by design. That's okay. We're supposed to have to ask God for help. Because that's one of the biggest ways that God intends for us to learn more about who he is. We're so used to following the prince of the power of the air, the devil, that we don't know how to follow God. And God uses this not just to teach us how to follow him, but also to teach us who he is. And so, again, 
you need God's help even to follow him. Not only everything you have, but even everything you do is a gift from God. So stop trying to just repackage that gift and give it back to God. Just enjoy it. Jump into those good works that God's prepared for you. Asking the entire time for God to help you and give you the strength to do them. Pray for holiness and enjoy it as God's gift for you. As Paul says, not your own doing so that no one may boast. Now, those of you who've been making, like looking at your watches, have uh, probably realized it's getting close to the time for me to end this. And those of you who are even more observant may have realized I skipped something. I haven't mentioned faith, have I? Since my introduction. Like I said that faith was part of my definition of what a Christian is, right? So you might ask, all right, why have you waited until now to even bring it up? And to be honest, when I first set out to write a sermon on this text, I probably would have agreed. But after looking at this text, I think something's important, and that's that Paul doesn't mention faith even until verse 8. He spends verses 4 through 6 all talking about why we're no longer children of wrath, and he doesn't talk about faith at all. It's not until he starts talking about the results of God's love and mercy that he starts talking about faith. And that's definitely not because he doesn't think that faith is important. I mean, Paul uses the word faith 142 times in the letters that we have in the New Testament from him. It's only used 244 times in the whole New Testament altogether. So Paul definitely has a lot to say about faith. No, I, I think what he's doing is he's making sure that he puts faith in the right place. Faith doesn't cause God to show us love and mercy. It's a gift from God as a result of his love and mercy. Paul says in verses 8 and 9 that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I could go on a rant here about how the Greek makes it clear that both the grace and the faith that Paul talks about are the gift of God, but I don't think that's necessary, and I don't think you guys even care to hear that. Uh, because I think, really, you just need a basic understanding of English to look at this and see that. I mean, this, that this in verse 8 refers to the whole phrase, by grace you've been saved through faith. I think that's pretty straightforward. Like, just imagine, how weird would it be for Paul to say, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing? Well, Except for the faith part, that one's on you. But that's not what he says, right? No, he says that even our faith is the gift of God, just like the rest of our works. And that's not bad news. It means that because faith is a gift, and we know that God is the giver of every good gift, we can pray, along with the Father from Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. It means we can pray for our non-Christian friends to come to know Christ. And if you are a non-Christian who's started to see the beauty of the gospel, it means you can pray for the power to believe, to reach out in faith. Paul's point is that we're not supposed to white-knuckle our walk with Christ, you know, desperately just hanging on to him by our own strength. We're supposed to be held by Christ himself. We're supposed to be embraced by the one who's promised us, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Our natural response to truly understanding who we are in Christ should primarily be one of rest and thankfulness, not of striving and duty. Now, I say primarily because there is genuinely a place in the Christian life for striving and duty, but that's situated firmly under the rest and the strength that God himself supplies. If we truly understood God's heart towards us, his abundant mercy and his eternal and overflowing love towards us, we would stop trying to just make ourselves into people who deserve that love. We would simply just devote all of our power to knowing and enjoying the love that's already been given to us in Christ. And if we understood that God's desire and all his dealings with us is to show us immeasurable kindness in Christ, then we would actually take him up on his offer to give us every good thing. We bring every desire of our hearts to him in prayer. We would earnestly ask that he would grant those desires, and we would ask that he would transform those desires to help us ask rightly. And if we understood that even the works we do now as Christians to honor God are good gifts from God for our joy, then we would stop doing these works, or attempting to do these works at least, by our own power. We would simply rest in the one who's prepared these works for us. We would trust that he calls us to do these works for our joy so that we would know him, enjoy him, and glorify him through those works. And finally, we would thank him for all this. We would thank him for his love for us, for his gift of salvation, for the gift of faith that we use to lay hold of that salvation, and even for the gift of the good works by which we honor all of those other gifts. In short, knowing who we are as Christians, sinners, saved by grace through faith in Christ, to show Christ's glory, that's what enables us to follow Paul's command in 2 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for the gospel, God, that met us in our deadness and our sin and saved us and sanctifies us, God, and gives us good works to enjoy you, know you, and glorify you, God. God, I pray that you would work the gospel deeper into our hearts, God, that we would know who we were, God, and what you've done to make us into who we are now, God. God, and I pray that we would just love you so much because of that, God. And God, our lives would be the outflow of that love. God, every good work we do would be the prayerful outworking of your love in us, God. And I pray that we go out, God, and just have the peace of Christ in our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen.